1: Welcome to Go Green Radio, brought to you by Covanta Energy. Reduce, reuse, recycle, rethink renewable energy and energy from waste. This program will help start you thinking about how to protect our world and its important resources. Now here's the host for Go Green Radio, Jill Buck. Welcome to Go
2: Green Radio. folks. Today we're going to be bridging into a brand new topic that we have not covered yet on Go Green Radio. You know, we've talked a lot about renewable energy. We're hearing lots of stuff in the newspaper and on TV about solar, wind. We're even hearing stuff about the smart grid and smart meter. But part of the equation to make all those things work is a concept called energy storage. And today, we're very lucky to have the Executive Director of the Energy Storage Council with us. Jason McKenzie is out of St. Louis, Missouri. In fact, that's about an hour away from my hometown, Mount Vernon, Illinois, And uh, we are very excited to have you on, Jason. Welcome to Go Green Radio.
3: Thank you very much. I have in-laws in in Mount Vernon, Illinois, just FYI.
2: (laughs) It's a small world after all. I'm out here in California now, but uh, Mount Vernon will always be home. Uh, And the St. Louis Cardinals will always be my team. So, Jason, you know, energy storage is a huge topic, and we're going to take it bite-sized pieces by bite-sized pieces. Let's begin, though, by setting up your background for our listeners. Tell our listeners about your background in the energy field, if you would.
3: Certainly. Well, I uh, came out of college with a a degree in chemical engineering, uh, but, you know, one way or the other, I've been uh, in the energy business since uh, 1978. Starting my uh, career uh, coincidentally with a uh, company called Exxon. Um, in fact, one of my first projects uh, with them was uh, something very similar to what's going on in the uh, in the Gulf right now. We don't have to get into that. I uh, worked with the uh, Tennessee Valley Authority for a little while, and then moved to uh, New York City, where I went to college and uh, uh, took a job with a uh, with a magazine called Power Magazine, and. Uh, there basically uh, served as a uh, industry uh, spokesperson, leader, analyst for the electricity business for uh, 18 years. Uh, did a jump off in year 2000, like many people, to uh, a dot-com that was also <laughs> serving the same industry. And uh, And then in 2000, I formed my own consulting business, again, focused on the electricity business. And throughout most of that time, uh, energy storage has been one of the, uh, what I call the missing link in the electricity production and delivery value chain. So a key practice area of Pearl Street Incorporated, which is my consulting company, has been uh, energy storage as it affects the grid.
2: And, And when did you first begin getting involved in energy storage specifically?
3: Well, I was covering uh, energy storage technology uh, R&D programs back in the uh, mid-1980s and uh, for for Power Magazine. In in 2001, after I started my consulting business, uh, several energy storage uh, companies and energy storage uh, service and consulting companies asked me to form uh, this energy storage council so we could... Uh, shape the policy coming out of the uh, federal government and the states. Now, I should say that the Energy Storage Council, while it still exists, has been uh, superseded today by a new organization called the Coalition to Advance Renewable Energy Through Bulk Storage. And I realize that's a long, unwieldy name, but we've <laughs> shortened it to Caribs. So it's the Caribs organization and essentially We do the same thing. We're helping to shape the policy at the federal government and the state government's level so that we can uh, overcome this missing link in electricity.
2: Well, and we're definitely going to delve into public policy issues a little bit later in the show because I think that's where the rubber meets the road. I mean, we can talk about the theory and the science of energy storage and how it interfaces with the rest of... Um, what we know as the traditional electricity system, um, but for now, what I'd really love to to talk about is you know this energy storage council or the new organization uh, that you mentioned. Tell us about that organization, um, more about what you do, and who else is involved.
3: Okay. Well, the um, the organization uh, has as as members uh, uh, companies that develop. Uh, energy storage projects. And when we say bulk storage, uh, primarily we're interested in uh, large-scale storage projects, what would grid-scale storage projects. And those today could be batteries, they could be flywheels, they'd probably more likely be at the uh, very large sizes, compressed air energy storage and pumped storage hydroelectric. So the firms that are developing the projects the firms that are supplying the equipment and other services companies are the members of this uh, coalition, um, and uh, and their their interest, as it has been for 15, 20 years, is to uh, finally. Uh, well, right now, uh, energy storage is not recognized uh, very well in regulatory circles, and. Those of you who don't understand the electricity business uh, well beyond the bill that you pay every month, it's a highly regulated business, and uh, most every uh, technology or innovation somehow comes through a regulatory uh, window.
1: Mm
2: -hmm. Well, let me ask you this. You've got folks in your coalition who are working on the energy storage technologies, how friendly or maybe not so friendly is your interface with the folks who are manufacturing renewable energy?
3: Okay, and well, that's a, that's a very interesting uh, question, probably a controversial one. Um, I was hoping
2: know, so. That's why I it, asked. <laughs> yeah, and, 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 and
3: it's not that there's, uh, there's not so much an acrimonious uh, relationship between the two, but there is a a rather stark disagreement as to when uh, the respective uh, sectors, if you will, believe energy storage is going to be needed. Now, Mm -hmm. the renewable uh, energy industries, particularly the wind industry, uh, believe that energy storage will not be necessary until we reach a very high penetration of renewable energy onto the grid. Their figure is 20% of the total resources uh, uh, generating electricity for the grid. Now, most other sectors, not just ours, uh, believe that's too high and that energy storage in some parts of the country is needed today. And mm-hmm. uh, frankly, you know, we're We're probably both right and we're both wrong because there are some ways to accommodate wind uh, without storage, but the question always boils down to economics and regulation in this industry, and it's a matter of which can do the job best over a long period of time that uh, infrastructure businesses are generally built on.
2: Well, let me ask you this, Jason, because maybe I'm just, you know, too close to the kitchen table thinking on all of this, but it seems like if energy storage started coming online as rapidly as solar and wind, then perhaps solar and wind, you know, maybe we wouldn't need so much. I mean, perhaps it's a matter of you know, in order to sell as many wind turbines and to spin as many solar panels as possible, let's keep energy storage at bay until we've, you know, sold a, a boatload. Is that somewhere in the bulk park?
3: Well, I think uh, nobody from the, uh uh you know, wind uh, industry would state it that way, but the underlying uh, assumption, I think, is that uh, they they can sell, uh two maybe three times as many wind turbines uh without storage as they could uh with storage. So yeah, in a sense there is a uh, competition there. Now, the interesting uh, uh underlying aspect of that is that uh you know, the largest equipment supplier or uh, wind turbine supplier in the United States, uh General Electric GE Energy, uh they also are working on uh, storage and You know, for them, almost all companies uh, have to protect current income before they cannibalize it with future income. And, you know, companies like GE are wrestling with that right now.
2: Mm -hmm. You know, I first learned of your website for the Energy Storage Council um, from a website put up by the Carbon War Room. And this is a very interesting organization that a lot of our listeners may not be aware of um, could you tell us, you know, give us a thumbnail sketch of this organization and how it came to be that your website was linked to theirs?
3: Yeah, that's uh, you know, I, frankly, I've never uh, heard of the uh, Carbon War Room. You know, uh links links get established on the uh, internet all the time, so frankly, I I have no idea how that link was uh, was established, but I did take a look at some of the uh information you sent about them and uh you know, I'm gratified to see that they at least understand what storage might be able to do for the grid.
2: <laughs> well, and actually, you know, the, the way that this organization, as I understand it, is organized, I think that it was started by Sir Richard Branson. Uh, a lot of folks know him as a multi-billionaire um, head of Virgin America or Virgin Airlines and the whole Virgin brand. And uh, about 15 of his other um, good friends who are similarly wealthy, and they have kind of broken down this climate change issue into what they consider theaters and battles, and energy storage is one of their identified theaters. So um, it's no small thing that you ended up on their website. Not sure how it happened, but congratulations to you on that. You know, we have just about a minute until we take a quick break, but in that time, could you give us just the Reader's Digest version for our listeners, why energy storage is such an important component of the energy delivery process?
3: Okay. Well, first of all, it's become critical because of the renewable energy that's coming online. And what I would ask your listeners to think about is, you know, a, a turbine uh, spinning or a solar panel sitting there when the sun isn't shining or the wind isn't blowing and then think about the electricity that comes into your socket. You know, would you like that to be interrupted in the same manner as those natural forces interrupting the, uh, the source of the energy? That's really where energy storage comes in, in its most simplistic way.
2: Well, that sounds like uh, something we need to dive much deeper into, and we will do that right after this quick commercial break. Don't go away, folks. We've got more about energy storage and why it matters to you. You're going to understand why it's a critical issue to our energy needs in the 21st century right after this commercial break. More from Go Green Radio.
4: Every Monday at 1 p.m. PST, right here on the Voice America Channel.
1: Healthcare is a topic that is prevalent on everybody's mind these days. We've heard of the reform efforts that are going on in government. Where can you get some of the most up-to-date answers that you need? Tune in to Clint's Cures: Answers for Your Healthcare with host Clint Mound. Clint has over 40 years of experience in the healthcare profession and is prepared to offer the answers and solutions to your questions. Listen to Clint's Cures every Monday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com.
2: Welcome back to Go Green Radio. So glad that you could join us. I want to give a special shout-out to two groups of people that are are loyal listeners, and those are my tweets, all my Twitter followers, and I appreciate all the tweets that are going on during the show and after. And I also want to give a big shout-out to all the members of our Go Green Face Space. If you would like to be in one of those two groups, you can. Anybody can join just check out our website at www.gogreeninitiative.org, and there you will find all kinds of ways to get involved with what we're doing with Go Green Radio and with the Go Green Initiative. We are talking about a subject that I blogged about this week. Uh, I was really sort of off the cuff with my title of my blog, What is Energy Storage and Why Should I Care? Believe it or not, folks, this is something that we should all care about because two of the most pressing issues, Two of the most important things that we will be concerned about in the 21st century, I promise you, will be energy and water. And we've spent time talking about water on this show. We've spent time talking about energy, but we've never covered energy storage. And today, we have Jason McKenzie, who is an expert in the field. He's been working not just in the energy industry, but also in electric storage, and is considered a national expert on this subject. Jason, what I'd really love for you to do is to give our listeners a definition of energy storage and a thumbnail sketch of some of the technologies involved in energy storage at the utility scale.
3: Okay. Well, uh, an energy storage device uh, today, since, since for the most part, until you get down to the very small level of a capacitor, electricity cannot be stored as electricity in large quantities. So an energy storage device is something that takes electrical energy and converts it into some other form of energy. In a battery, that may be chemical energy. In a flywheel, that may be mechanical energy. Uh, in a compressed air storage or a pump storage, that would also be mechanical energy. So that, in essence, is a storage device. Now, uh, there's, there's two characteristics that define a storage device is... How much power, how much electricity it can hold or store, and then how long it can discharge that electricity for some beneficial use. So if you think about a, uh, uh, let's say your, your UPS, your uninterruptible power system for your computer, that would be a storage device that would provide a large amount of electricity, relatively, for a small period of time. Uh, at least, most home UPS type devices. Um, the types of storage uh, devices that we're talking about for the grid—they uh, store large quantities of electricity. So, if you—you know—I'm—I'm I'm looking at a uh, at a 20-story uh, building here in St. Louis. Maybe this building uses, uh, you know, half a megawatt of electricity on a day-to-day basis. That would be the equivalent of uh, uh, 400 homes, okay? Um, mm-hmm. That would be a small uh, b- a storage device in in the context of the grid. Um, and then we go up to uh, systems, storage systems, that are as big as some of the power plants that you see out there uh... in the country today so a typical uh... power plant big power plant might be a thousand megawatts which would be uh... you know enough electricity generated for half a million to a million homes mm-hmm. um, uh... some of the big pumped hydroelectric storage facilities and some of the large compressed air storage facilities that we're talking about today are of that size. So they're really big, okay? Now, you think about your battery, that you have a battery for your flashlight or a battery for your computer, and think about that size, and now convert that to something that's the size of your house or the size of a tractor trailer or even the size of some of those power stations that you see out there uh, in the country. So that, that's the kind of thing we're talking about. That the primary technologies for doing this are flywheels uh, which which are kind of like electric motors. I'm not going to try to pretend that I can explain to somebody over this radio how these devices work, but a flywheel is very much like an electric motor sitting there ready to provide Electricity. Um, a uh, a battery is a chemical device. There are static batteries of the type most people are familiar with. Then there's also uh, something called a flow battery, where fluid is flowing between uh, two different tanks, and the electrons of that flow are being captured and stored. Um, then there is uh, probably the easiest for people to understand is a pump storage hydroelectric where water is simply pumped uphill and stored. And when you want electricity, you just uh, direct water back down through the same uh, pump, and it runs as a turbine. The same Mm -hmm. concept is used for a compressed air storage facility, except the compressed air is stored usually underground in a cavern or maybe in an above-ground tank, but a compressor compresses and stores the air. And then later, when electricity is needed, it reverses itself, and that air is expanded through a turbine. So those are primarily the technologies that we're talking about.
2: Now, for those Go Green Radio listeners who may be thinking, what do we need energy storage for? Let's just build more energy generation opportunities. You know, let's just build, build, build more power plants. What do you say to them in terms of the, the value that energy storage capacity brings to the average ratepayer? Why should we care?
3: Okay, well, let me, uh, let me address that in several different ways. First of all, uh, the renewable energy uh, uh, element that I uh, alluded to earlier. If you have all of these wind turbines and all of these solar devices and all of a sudden you have cloud cover or the wind dies, you know, there's no electricity. Now, today, that's not such a big problem in most parts of the country because there are other sources of electricity feeding the grid that will overcome that, but as you get into situations like in Texas or in the Pacific Northwest where the wind generation is a becomes a large component of what is feeding the grid, well, that turbine stops that electricity being fed in stops but unfortunately, your consumption of electricity doesn't stop um, so that's one that's one issue if you can. Instead, store, uh, electricity generated by these devices when they're generating and then use it when you need it. Overall, that's going to provide you a more optimized system. Now again, this is a particularly acute problem with wind because the wind, uh, the the strength of the wind in most parts of the country is diametrically opposed to the way people use electricity in other words the wind blows strongest at night but weakest during the day people Mm -hmm. use most of their electricity during the day so this is where storage starts to look really valuable when you can take all of that wind generated from at midnight and put it on the grid at noon because Uh, what, you know, people need to understand that our electricity grid, even though you plug something into the wall and it just shows up, it's really a just-in-time inventory system. So if a huge user of electricity all of a sudden, quote, unplugs from the grid, well, there has to be some generation somewhere that also has to come off the grid. Otherwise, the system becomes completely imbalanced, and all electricity users suffer.
2: So this actually...
3: So that's the the first benefit, Jill. And then the the second benefit uh, uh, doesn't so much have to do with the renewable component, but has to do with the reliability of uh, of, of supply. So Mm -hmm. I'd like your listeners to think back to uh, the blackout of 2003, which affected large uh, portions of the Midwest and the Northeast. And I'm sure listeners in every part of the country have had some kind of a blackout or a brownout situation in the last five years. Mm-hmm. So electricity storage, a large scale and strategically placed, can help a grid come back from those types of incidences. So it's an incredible tool for uh, managing the reliability of the grid.
2: Well, when you say it that way, it almost seems like a national security issue as well.
3: I mean, well, I'm know, glad mean, you brought that up because that's one of the uh, that's one of the issues that, that we drive home, uh, you know, in our presentations and our discussions. And while you know, national national security is always difficult to value. It's kind of like insurance. You know, how much is one willing to pay? Or insurance, uh, it is it is most definitely a, uh, a, a security uh, issue.
2: Well, and I can imagine that that's on several levels, not only to help us optimize the amount of renewable energy versus foreign oil that we're using, but also to ensure that if there were some sort of terrorist attack on the grid, that we would be able to, you know, kind of circumvent that through strategically placed, as you said, energy storage capacity we've got to take a quick break but we're going to be right back on this very fascinating topic so folks don't go away we'll be back in just a moment with more go green radio
1: News. Opinion.
4: Listen to the Stars of PR with Cindy R. every Thursday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time here on News Talk Radio, voiceamerica.com.
1: Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26 percent, 43 percent, or 14 percent? stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast all the time the number one internet talk station where your opinion counts voiceamerica.com you're listening to go green radio with your host jill buck Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio.
2: This is one of my favorite parts of the show every week when we have our very, very favorite green team journalists bring us the green news that they develop every week. They're down in L.A., and they're so smart. Marley and Elijah are brother and sister, and they work with my good friend Scott McGinnis, um, an accomplished director, actor, and producer down in L.A. himself, and they have developed... Uh, an organization called Global Broadcast for Kids, and they are bringing their weekly green news segment to us right now. So listen in.
5: GlobalBroadcastForKids.com presents GBK
2: Green News in association with the Go Green Initiative, from one
6: kid to another.
5: Hey, what's up, guys? It's Marley
6: And Elijah
5: here with gbk's green news in association with the go green initiative on go green radio and we're going to get started Um, packaging made from bamboo to cradle new dell computers has been certified compostable the company said the bamboo packaging has received certification from american society for testing materials Um, And when added to hot, active compost piles, the mechanically pulped bamboo material will biodegrade at a rate comparable to known compostable materials, according to a company press release. Well, so what? So
6: what? The Go Green Initiative says that bamboo is more like grass than a tree, meaning that it grows very quickly and can be put into good use in a short amount of time. And as long as the bamboo is grown nearby the warehouses where Dell computers are packaged then this works. But if bamboo has to be transported for a long distance between where it's grown and where it's used, well, we can waste a lot of fuel and cause more pollution. As long as that's not the case, then Dell has started a new revolution in packaging.
5: Increased recycling in Baltimore County, Maryland is helping conserve the county's landfill space. A new single stream recycling program was started on February 1st and during the first 10 weeks residential trash ending up at the county's landfill has been reduced by 4 percent according to the Baltimore County Executive Jim Smith. This is great news for our entire county. The program is not only collecting more recyclable material for the county, it is also reducing the generation of trash. Well, so what? So
6: what? The Go Green Initiative says that single stream recycling has gotten a bad rap in some areas. By the way, single stream is where you put all of your trash in one can, and then it's separated at a material recovery facility, MRF pronounced MRF. But facts have shown that communities with MRFs achieve higher recycling rates than multi-stream recycling programs, where you have different containers for glass, newspaper, and cans. For some communities, a single stream system just works better for them. So let's encourage Baltimore to keep up the great work of reducing their amount that ends up in the landfill.
5: If oil company BP is to blame for the massive oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico, it was the U.S. Interior Department headed by Ken Salazar that was responsible for greenlighting the Deepwater Horizon oil rig behind the disaster. More than 3 million gallons of the crude oil have since gushed into the Gulf. Well, so what? So
6: what? Well, the Go Green Initiative says that there is a term that might have prevented this disaster called the precautionary principle, which means that people in government have a responsibility to protect the public from harm, and that they should require scientific evidence that an action or a product is not harmful before it's allowed. In this case, BP would have been required to prove that their proposed oil rig would cause no harm, rather than simply reporting that they saw no risk in building the rig. If you want to learn more about the precautionary principle, it's easy to google or wiki. Protecting the public seems like a pretty basic expectation for our elected officials.
5: The world can seem depressing at times. Bad news is hard to handle like oil spills, wildfires, floods, hurricanes, earthquakes. But to you, bad news is not always so bad. It can motivate us to act, to learn from our mistakes, and eventually get better at it. Good news offers a glimmer of hope, a reminder that hard work can actually show results. Yesterday we received good news from the Energy Information Administration, the EIA, an independent federal statistics and analysis agency. They reported that the U.S. achieved a record setting 7% decline in CO2 in 2009. The 7% decline is the largest percentage decline since the U.S. EIA began keeping records of yearly energy data in 1949. For the few who don't know, carbon dioxide is considered a greenhouse gas and one of the primary culprits of the climate change. It's not toxic to humans at its normal levels. We create it with every breath we take. However, it builds up in the atmosphere from all our use of fossil fuels. It has the potential to change the climate of the earth, Lowering global production of CO2 is the primary long-term environmental goal of all civilized nations. Well, so what? So
6: what? The Go Green Initiative says that this should be a headline in every newspaper because this is a really big deal. Keep this in mind. We cut our overall emissions even though our population went up. That means that on a per-person basis, we actually cut our average carbon emissions by more than 7%. While some people in the world are still upset with the fact that the U.S. didn't broker a huge global treaty in Copenhagen to cut carbon emissions worldwide, the fact is that we still did a great job at home, and we're leading the world by example.
5: Yay, USA! All right, guys, this is Marley.
6: And Elijah.
5: Signing off with GBK's Green News in association with the Go Green Initiative on Go Green Radio, and make sure you do one thing a day to help the environment, like take two minutes less in the shower,
6: recycle your bottles and cans.
5: Whatever you can. Um until next time, bye.
6: Later everybody. GBK Green
0: News,
2: copyright 2010. Global Broadcast4Kids.com. Well, there you go. Our favorite green teen journalist giving us the green news for the week. Jason, what'd you think of those guys? They're pretty smart, huh?
3: well they're pretty smart i would uh, i would have to quibble with uh their seven percent c o two reduction though uh you know that's at that the expense of uh, of the economy and millions of jobs lost
2: right right in your in your uh experience and perspective what would be a a truer piece of data on that
3: well uh i think the the uh the the truest piece of data would be if you could Somehow segregate out the uh, reduction in CO2 as a result of people's behavioral changes, as opposed to the reduction solely because of the uh, the uh, debilitating economic recession.
2: Yeah, that's that's a fact. Well, I appreciate that input. You know, I, I want to talk about something that's related to the economic downturn. Um, Right in the middle of it all, we're seeing stimulus dollars for this and that. I've read about several solar and wind projects that have been funded via stimulus dollars, but I haven't read about energy storage projects getting sim- similar stimulus dollars from the federal government. Did I, did I miss those stories, or are we truly not seeing the same kind of investment in storage that we're seeing in renewable generation?
3: Well, uh, I have to say, Jill, you did miss uh, some of the the uh, funding uh, that has uh, gone forward for storage projects. Uh, however,
2: I'm glad to um, hear that you are, <laughs> you are
3: right in the sense that uh, much, much, much more uh, stimulus and uh, uh, incentives went to uh, went to renewable energy. But there are some very important uh, projects that got funded uh, for storage. One is. Uh, one is to be located uh, in new york's uh, upstate new york uh, one is in uh, california with uh, pacific gas and electric uh there's uh, i believe there were four uh, what we call bulk storage projects um, there's a uh, nice uh, very fascinating uh, flywheel installation that uh, is benefiting from 20 or 30 million dollars of uh, of uh... stimulus money up there in, uh... i believe it's either upstate new york or at the uh... new york uh massachusetts border i can't remember but um... so there are some uh... projects but uh... the uh... bottom line is that uh... uh... storage is not yet supported and incentivized to the same degree as renewable now that may change here pretty soon i just got an email today saying that uh... California had passed uh, an energy storage uh, incentive bill, uh, or at least uh, the leg- the assembly or the legislature has. It still has to go through the Senate. And there is a, uh, a very nice uh, storage uh, uh, tax incentive, uh, investment tax credit that's uh, standing before uh, the, uh, the Senate and a companion bill in the House. And I would urge anybody... Uh, that's listening, who uh, believe that storage can play a role uh, in bringing, uh, and this is the way we like to say it, we bring more renewable energy to more people more of the time, then call your senator or congressman and uh, uh, show your support for the uh, storage investment tax credit bill being sponsored by uh, Senator Wyden of, of Oregon
2: in a perfect world that balanced renewable energy generation and energy storage for optimal performance and carbon emission reduction, in your mind, what percentage of available public dollars would go to renewable energy generation and what percentage would go to energy storage? What's a good balance?
3: Okay. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um, and I think the, the, the way I would answer it is twofold. One is, and, uh, you know, I have to just make this uh, sort of off-the-cuff comment. I was at a storage meeting a year and a half ago, and uh, and we were talking about this uh, sort of controversy between the storage community and uh, the wind community. And uh, Obama had just been uh, been elected, hadn't yet taken office. and uh, And I happened to just say to the audience, well, you know, for the wind industry, the view from the top must be magnificent.
2: <laughs> because, you
3: know with with the change in administration i mean they are in the energy business right now the top dogs um, they you know they are right in the middle of uh uh creating policy i mean they still complain about certain things uh, their uh the uh, intermittency of their uh of their production tax credit which is a legitimate uh, concern um, but the bottom line is that uh if if we funded storage over a 20 year period to the degree that we funded and incentivized uh wind and solar uh we could probably bring uh, twice as much renewable energy to twice as many people twice as fast than if we didn't and we would do it more in an opt- in, a, in a more optimized way because we wouldn't overbuild on the number of wind turbines so i would say Given that, and and other factors which I won't get into, that that we should be uh, that it should be probably fifty-fifty at this point. Uh, wind and solar have enjoyed incentives; they've gotten up on their uh, you know commercialization. You know that whole technology curve that you see. You know you have to get past that knee in the curve, the valley of death, the uh, venture capitalists call it. Uh, wind is way beyond that. It's a it's a big player now. Uh, solar is getting to that point where they're a big player as well. Storage is now the little guy, and we have mm-hmm. to uh, sort of fight and claw for uh, dollars uh, like like a little guy. <laughs> yeah.
2: Well, we need to take a quick break, but we'll be right back to talk more about the public policy issues and budget issues surrounding energy storage And most importantly, how those of you who are listening and really getting fired up about energy storage can get involved and advocate for greater public interest and investment in energy storage. Don't go away. We'll be right back with more Go Green Radio.
1: Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's
0: it. That's it.
1: VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Interstate Sportsman Talk radio show brings two well-known outdoorsmen to the Voice America Network with hunting and fishing info news. Talking about everything from new sporting gear, places to hunt and fish, and getting more from your recreation time. Join host Brock Ray and Don Kirk Friday mornings at 6 a.m. Pacific Time, 9 Eastern, for the Interstate Sportsman on the Voice America channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com.
2: Welcome back to Go Green Radio. So glad that you could all join us. If you're joining us late and you missed the first part of the show and you're bummed, don't even worry about it because guess what? We are syndicated. You can listen to this show again on the Green Talk Network at 9 a.m. Pacific on Tuesday, noon on the East Coast, same day on Tuesday, you can check out the Green Talk Network by visiting voiceamerica.com and clicking on the Green Talk Network icon, and there you will find us. And so if you want to let your friends know that this is an episode they shouldn't have missed, you can find us there and listen again on Tuesdays, 9 a.m. Pacific, noon Eastern. Well, we are joined by Jason McKenzie. He is the Executive Director of the Energy Storage Council and very involved and energy storage from a public policy standpoint as well and really lucky and very uh, blessed to have him on the program today. This is a topic that we haven't covered yet on Go Green Radio and I'm so glad that we have one of the nation's premier leaders and thinkers on this issue to help us understand energy storage. You know, Jason, we are hearing uh, the president and a lot of other elected officials talking about the smart grid more and more. In your mind, is it possible to have a smart grid without a good percentage of energy storage. Is that even possible?
3: Well, I'd have to give that an unequivocal no, uh only because uh uh you're going to need storage somewhere on that uh on that grid. Now, um, we we could we could operate the grid the way we've been operating for the last uh 100 years without uh without an appreciable amount of storage most of your listeners probably don't realize that we do have uh about 25,000 megawatts and I'll translate that into about 2% of all the electricity uh generating capability in our country uh, is embodied by uh, uh about so what is it? Thirty or forty uh, pumped storage hydroelectric facilities around the country, and these uh, these do serve uh, useful purposes. Um, but uh, in in the future, because everything has become so much more refined, because we are now a digital society, we cannot run the grid the way we've run it for the last hundred years. So we it, it's almost like You you tell me where you want to put the storage, and we'll put the storage. We can, you know, if if you want to have a truly smart grid. Now, the storage can be, you know, all of us as electricity consumers, we could buy our own storage device and just have one in our home. Instead of a, a UPS for your computer, you could have an uninterruptible power system for your house, and... Some people have this. Some large uh, McMansion-type houses today will come with a diesel generator, which is like a backup device for your electricity. That could very well be a storage device, like a very large battery. So we could do it that way. We have uh, another concept, which a lot of electric utilities are interested in, called community energy storage. And I don't know if any of your listeners have noticed uh, in their neighborhoods those green boxes, but those are uh, transformers uh, serving uh, 10, 15 homes uh, in, a, in a neighborhood. And there have now been designed some energy storage devices just like those green transformer boxes, which would uh, you know, keep electricity flowing in the event of an interruption uh, on the grid. We can put the storage in uh, way what I call way back in the system, and you know near where you know the large power plants are, uh, the, the big transmission lines, and put in the large pump storage or compressed air storage facilities. Uh, we can do it anywhere along the production and delivery value chain. It's going to happen. It's just a matter of where. hmm
2: Well, let's talk for a moment about the way that you interface with utilities. It seems to me like, and again, this is just my, you know, minivan mom understanding of the situation, but uh, it seems to me like utilities would embrace, you know, energy storage in a big way because it seems like it would be more cost effective to have energy storage in place rather than having to run peaker plants, you know, during an energy supply shortage or what have you. What would keep utility companies from investing in and fully embracing energy storage?
3: Well, Jill, you're more than a uh, minivan mom if you, uh, if you <laughs> even know what a peaker facility is. So I, I applaud the fact that you uh, that you know that.
2: <laughs> I dabble. Um, I dabble in it. a few things. <laughs> Besides, we're <laughs> driving my minivan. But at any rate, tell us tell us more about that.
3: Yeah. So so the issue there is that um, in in effect we have. Energy storage today, um, uh, it's 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 embodied by, let's say that peaker you're talking about, which is a peaking uh, gas turbine or a peaking engine, and the quote stored energy unquote is really the fuel gas that's in our pipeline system, waiting to be used by that peaker. Now you can bring that peaker up at providing electricity. Within say twenty minutes, all right. So now, now you have electricity. the The crucial thing for your listeners to understand is response time. So let me go back to that cloud, you know, passing over the sun, and all of your photovoltaic devices going down to zero. Now, do you want to wait twenty minutes for your electricity? Well, the answer with for most people is of. By no means will anybody wait even 30 <laughs> seconds for their electricity. So right. a storage device, a battery, a compressed air storage will respond uh, sooner. And then you get into the whole issue about the emissions from that peaker, whether that in fact is really the best way to provide short-term bursts of electricity over, a, over the next hundred years of the smart grid.
2: Right. Well, and I, I have to touch on pricing because for for those of our listeners who are like, "Okay, bring it right down to my pocketbook um, you know pricing's definitely an issue. I mean, electricity is not considered a luxury in the United States, and if investment in energy storage were to drive our price per kilowatt through the roof, um, a lot of Americans wouldn't tolerate that how do we how do we accomplish what needs to be done in terms of investing in renewables and in energy storage without breaking the bank for ratepayers?
3: Okay, well this is the way I would describe it. First of all, all of your listeners should know that your electricity rates are going to go up no matter what. We have so much to pay for in terms of reducing uh, uh, carbon, you know, decarbonizing our electricity system, uh, enhancing the uh, grid with uh, smart grid technologies. So the electricity rates are going to go up. It's a question of how and when, how much and when. So I would offer you this. You can either build two or three times the number of wind turbines that you need and and pay two or three times what you might have paid. Or you can build a wind system with a uh, with a storage system and pay that price. Now, you know, the evaluations that we see over, again, over a long period of time, which is the way you have to think in infrastructure-type infrastructure businesses, is storage can be competitive in those situations. Or we we can even even go back to doing it the old way and using the peakers and some of the coal plants, but there are exorbitant costs associated with providing those short-term bursts of electricity.
2: Well, Jason, I want to thank you for enlightening us. This was a fascinating topic. We're going to have to have you back for more. Folks, we'll be here same time, same place next week with more Go Green Radio, and we look forward to talking with you then.
3: Thank you.